0: Section twenty five of Astounding Stories fourteen, february nineteen thirty one by various this LibriVox recording is in the public domain The Pirate Planet by Charles W. Diffin Chapter nineteen The Earth fleet was a slanting line of swiftness that swept downward from the clouds. A swarm of craft was rising from below. The red-striped fighters met the attack first with a cloud of gas the scarlet monster the flagship of torg the emperor was in the lead and they shot with terrific speed across the bows of the oncoming fleet to leave a whirlwind of deadly vapor as they passed mcguire held his breath in an agony of fear as the cloud enveloped the line of ships but their bow guns roared staccato crashes in the thunder of their exhausts as they entered the cloud and they were firing from the stern as they emerged while two falling cylinders of red and white proved the effectiveness of their fire. The formation held true as it swept upward and back where the swarming enemy was waiting. They were outnumbered three to one, McGuire saw, and his heart sang within him as he watched the sharp speeding V that climbed upward to the enemy's level, then swung to throw itself like a lance of light at the massed ships that awaited the attack. Another cloud of gas, and a shattered ship and again the line emerged to correct its broken formation and drive once more toward the circling swarm. They came to meet them now, the clusters of red-striped fighting ships, and they tore in from all sides upon the American line, their hooked beaks gleaming in the sun. And now, at an unseen signal, the formation broke, each ship fought for its life, and the stabbing flashes of their guns made ceaseless jets of light against the smoke and gas clouds that were darkening the sky. "'A dog-fight,' breathed Lieutenant McGuire. And what a dog-fight!' His words were lost in the terrific thunder from above. The roar of the ships and the dull thuds of the guns engulfed them in a maelstrom of noise that battered like physical blows on the watchers below. He swore unconsciously, and called down curses upon the enemy, as he saw two fighters meet while the shining beak of a ship of the Reds crashed through the body of an opposing craft. The red ship dipped at the bow. It backed off with terrific force, and from the curved beak a ship, with the insignia of the red, white, and blue, slid downward in a swift fall to the death that waited. They had fought themselves clear, and the Americans, by what must have been arrangement or wireless order, went roaring to the heights. There were some who followed, but the guns of the speeding ships drove them off. Red and white shapes fell swiftly from the clouds where the fighting had been, and McGuire knew that his fellows had given an account of themselves in the fighting at close range. Again the thundering line was sharp and true, and another unswerving attack was launching itself from above, and again the deadly formation with ever-increasing speed drove into the enemy with flashing guns, then parted to close with the ones that drove crushingly upon them, while the sharper clatter of rapid-firing guns came to shatter the air. The fighting craft had been rising from their level field in a succession that seemed endless. They were all in the air now, and only the great transports remained on the paved field. A red-striped fighter swept downward in retreat, and from the smoke clouds a silvery shape followed in pursuit. It reached the red and white one with its shells, and the great mass crashed with terrific impact on the field. Its pursuer must have seen the monsters still on the ground and it swung to rake them with a shower of small-caliber shells. There were machine-guns rattling as it passed above the thronged Reds, the troops who were huddled in terror in the open court. It tore on past them, past a figure in khaki who raced forward with the golden form of a girl within his arms, then released her to wave frantically as the silver ship shot by. Unobserved, McGuire and Althora had been, where they stood beside the buildings, the eyes of their enemies like their own were on the monstrous battle above but now they had called themselves to the attention of the reds and there were some who rushed upon them with faces livid with rage mcguire reached for a weapon from a victim of the machine-gun fire and prepared to defend himself but the weapon was never used he saw the silvery shape reverse itself in the air it turned sharply to throw itself back toward the solitary figure in uniform of their service and the golden-clad girl beside him the flyer raised his weapon but the jostling swarm that rushed upon him melted the ripping fire of machine guns was deafening in his ears their deadly tattoo continued while the great ship sank slowly to touch and rest its huge bulk upon the pavement a door in the ship's curved side opened that the blocky figure of a man might leap forth He was grimy of face, and his uniform was streaked with the smoke and sweat of battle, but the face beneath the grime and the hands that reached to embrace and pound the flyer upon the back could only be those of one he had known as his captain—Captain Blake. "'You son of a gun!' the shouting figure was repeating. "'You damned Irish son of a gun! A.W.O.L.—but you can't get away with it. Come on, get in here. I'm needed up above.' McGuire was struggling to speak from a throat that was suddenly tight and voiceless. Then—'Althora!' he gasped.—'Take Althora!' and he motioned toward the girl, and then he remembered the companion he had left in the room above—the battle that had flashed so suddenly had blasted from his mind all other thoughts. "'My God!' he said. "'Sykes! I must get Sykes!' He turned to run back to the building, only to stop in consternation where a huddle of clothing lay beneath the balcony of their prison-room. It was Sykes—Sykes, who had sacrificed himself to make possible the escape of his friend—and McGuire dropped to his knees to touch the body that he knew was shattered beyond any hope of life. He raised the limp burden in his arms, and staggered back where more khaki-clad figures had gathered. Two came quickly out to meet him, and he let them take the body of his friend. C'est fini, he repeated the words that Sykes had said. "The end of our little journey." The arms of Althora were about him as Blake hurried them into the waiting ship, and the roar of enormous power marked the rising of this spaceship to throw itself again into the fray. A small room with a dome of shatterproof glass, a pilot who sat there to look in all directions, a control board beneath his hands beside him on his elevated station was room for captain blake and mcguire and althora too the ship was climbing swiftly mcguire saw where flashing shapes circled and roared in a swelling cloud of smoke and gas blake spoke sharply to an aide general orders all ships climb to resume formation an enemy ship was before them it flashed from nowhere to bear down with terrific speed the floor beneath them shook with the jarring of heavy guns and McGuire saw the advancing shape bursting with puffs of smoke, while their own ship shot upward with a sickening twist. A silver ship was falling—and another. two more of ours gone,' said Captain Blake through his teeth. "'How many of them are there, Mac? Tell me what you know. We've got a hell of a fight on our hands.' "'They're all here,' McGuire told him, in jerky, breathless speech. "'These are transports on the ground. Their weapons are gas and speed, and the rams on their beaked ships. There are other weapons, deadlier ones, but they haven't gotten them—they belong to another race. I'll tell you all that later." "'Keep them at a distance, Blake,' he said. "'Make them come to you, then nail them as they come.' "'Right,' was the answer. "'That's good dope. We didn't know what they had—expected some devilish things that could down us before we got within effective range—had to mix it with them to find out what they could do, and get in a few solid cracks before they did it.' "'How high are we?' he glanced quickly at an instrument. Ten thousand. Order all ships to withdraw,' he instructed his aide. "'Rendezvous at fifty thousand feet for echelon formation.' Another brush with an enemy craft that slipped quickly to one side. Then the smoke-clouds were behind them, and a score of silvery shapes were climbing in vertical flight for the level at fifty thousand. They were fewer now than they had been, and the line that formed behind the flagship of Blake was shorter than the one that had made the V which shot down so bravely to engage with an unknown foe. The enemy was below. An arrangement of mirrors showed this from the commander's station. They were emerging from the clouds of smoke to swarm in circling flight through the sky, and now the bow of their own craft was depressed at an order from Blake. And the others were behind them as they drove to renew the attack. "'They're ganging up on us again,' said Blake. "'We'll fool them this time. We'll just kid them a little.' The flagship swerved before reaching the enemy and the others followed in what looked like frightened retreat. Again they were in the heights, and some few of the enemy were following. Blake led in another descent. No waiting swarm to greet them now. Blake gave a quick order. The roaring column shifted position as it fell. The flagship was the apex of a great V whose arms flung out and backward on either side—a V formation that curved and twisted through space and thundered upon the smaller formations that scattered before the blasting guns. "'Our bow-guns are the effective weapons,' Blake observed. His casual tone was a sedative to McGuire's tense nerves. "'We can use a broadside only of lighter weight. The kick of the big sights has to be taken straight back. But we're working, back home, on recoil-absorbing guns. We'll make fighting ships of these things yet.' He spoke quietly to the pilot to direct their course toward a group that came sweeping upon them, and the mast fire of the squadron was squarely into the oncoming beaks that fell beneath them, where the mirrors showed them crashing to the earth. They were scattered now. The enemy was in wild disorder, and Blake spoke sharply to his aid. "'Break formation,' he ordered. Every ship for itself. Engage the enemy where they find them. Shoot down anything they see. Prevent the enemy reforming.' He was taking quick advantage of the other's scattered forces, and he scattered his own that he knew could take care of themselves while they engaged the enemy only by ones or twos or threes clear the air of them he ordered not one of them must escape the skies were a maze of darting shapes that crossed and recrossed to make a spider's web of light ship drove at ship to swerve off at the last while the air quivered and beat upon them with the explosion of shells and guns there's our meat blake directed the pilot and pointed ahead where a monster in scarlet was swelling into view It came swiftly upon them, darting down from above, and McGuire clutched at the arm of the man beside him to shout,—'It's the the Leader—the Flagship—it's the Emperor—Torg himself! Give him hell, Blake! But look out—he's fast!' The ship was upon them like a flash of fire. No time for anything but dodging, and the pilot threw his craft wildly aside with a swerve that sent the men sprawling against a stanchion, then up and back where the other had turned to come up from below fast mcguire had said but the word was inadequate to describe the speed of the fiery shape another leap in the air as their pilot swung his controls and the red shape brushed past them in a cloud of gas while the quick-firers ripped futilely into space where the great ship had been get your bow guns on him blake roared the ship beneath them strained and shuddered with the incredible thunder of the generator that threw them bodily in the air The pilot had opened in full force the ports that blasted their bows aside. No time to gather new speed. They were motionless as the scarlet monster came upon them, but they were in position to receive him. The eight-inch rifles of the forward turret thundered again and again to be answered by flashes of flame from the scarlet ship. McGuire crouched over the bent form of the pilot, whose steady fingers held the ship's bow straight upon the flashing death that bore down upon them. Another salvo and another hits all of them smoke bursting from ripping plates and flaming fire more vivid than the scarlet shape itself and the floor beneath mcguire's feet drove crushingly upward as their pilot pulled a lever to the full the great beak flashed beneath and the mirrors where mcguire's eyes were fastened showed the terrific drive continued down and down where a brilliant cylinder that marked the power of venus tore shriekingly on to carry an emperor to his crashing death. The skies were clear of the red-striped ships. Only the survivors of the attacking force showed their silvery shapes as they gathered near their flagship. There were two that pursued a small group of the enemy, but they were being outdistanced in the race. "'We have won,' said Blake in a tone of wonder that showed how only now had come a realization of what the victory meant. "'We have won, and the earth is saved!' And the voice of McGuire echoed his fervent thank God while he gripped the soft hand that clung tightly to his, as if Althora, this radiant creature of Venus, were timid and abashed among the joyful shouting menfolk from another world. "'And now what, Captain?' asked Maguire of his command. "'Will you land?' "'There is an army of Reds down there asking for punishment.' Blake had turned away. His hand made grimy smears across his face where he wiped away the tears that marked a brave man's utter thankfulness. He covered his emotion with an affectation of disapproval as he swung back before McGuire. "'Captain?' he inquired. "'Captain! Where do you get that captain's stuff?' He pointed to an emblem on his uniform, a design that was unfamiliar to the eyes of McGuire. "'You're talking to an admiral now—the first admiral of the newest branch of your country's fighting service, commanding the first fleet of the spaceships of the United States of America.' He threw one arm about the other's shoulders. "'We'll have to get busy, Mac,' he added, "'and think up a new rank for you.' "'And yes, we are going to land,' he continued in his customary tones. "'There may be survivors of our own crashes, but we'll have to count on you, Mac, to show us around this little new world of yours.' There was an army waiting, as Maguire had warned, but it was waiting to give punishment and not to take it. The vast expanse of the landing-field was swarming with them, and the open country beyond showed columns of marching troops. They had learned, too, to take shelter. Barricades had been hastily erected, and the men had shields to protect them from the fire of small arms. Their bodies were enclosed in their gas-tight uniforms, whose ugly headpieces served only to conceal the greater ugliness beneath. They met the ships as they landed with a showering rain of gas that was fired from huge projectors. "'Not so good,' Blake was speaking in the safety of his ship. "'We have masks, but great heavens, Mac! There must be a million of those brutes!' We can spray them with machine-gun fire, but we haven't ammunition enough to make a dent in them, and we've got to get out and get to our crashed ships." He waited for McGuire's suggestions, but it was Althora who replied. "'Wait!' she said imperatively. She seemed to be listening to some distant word. Then—'Jorn is coming!' she exclaimed, and her eyes were brilliantly alight. "'He says to you,' she pointed to McGuire, "'that you were right—that we must fight like hell sometimes to deserve our heaven. Oh, I told him what you said, and now he is coming with all his men. What the devil? asked Blake in amazement. How does she know? Telepathy, Maguire explained. She is talking with her brother, the leader of the real inhabitants of Venus. He told the wondering man briefly of his experience and of the people themselves, the real owners of this world. But what can they do? Blake demanded. And Maguire assured him. Plenty. He turned to Althora to ask, How are they coming? How would they get here? they are marching underground they have been coming for two days they knew of our being captured but the people have been slow in deciding to fight jorn dared not tell me of their coming he feared he might be too late they will come out of that building she said and indicated the towering structure that had been their prison it has the old connection with the underground world well they'd better be good said blake incredulously he was still less optimistic when the building before them showed the coming of a file of men they poured forth in orderly fashion, and ranged themselves in single file along the walls. There must be a thousand, McGuire estimated, and he wondered if the women, too, were fighting for their own. Then, remembering Althora's brave insistence, he knew his surmise was correct. Each one was masked against the gas, their faces were concealed, and each one held before him a tube of shining metal with a larger, bulbous end that rested in their hands. Electronic projectors! the lieutenant whispered. Keep your eye on the enemy, Blake. You are going to learn something about war." The thin line was advancing now, and the gas billowed about them as they came. There were some few who dropped, where masks were defective, but the line came on, and the slim tubes were before them in glittering menace. At a distance of a hundred feet from the first of the entrenched enemy there was a movement along the line, as if the holders of the tubes had each set a mechanism in operation. And before the eyes of the earthmen was a spectacle of horror like nothing in wars they had known. The barricades were instantly a roaring furnace. The figures that leaped from behind them only added to the flames. From the steady rank of the attackers poured an invisible something before which the hosts of the enemy fell in huddles of flame. Those nearest were blasted from sight in a holocaust of horror, and where they had been, was a scattering of embers that smoked and glowed. Even the figures of the distant ones stumbled and fell. The myriad fighters of the Army of the Red Ones, when the attackers shut off their invisible rays, was a screaming mob that raced wildly over the open lands beyond. Althora's hands were covering her eyes, but McGuire and Blake and the crowding men about them stared in awe and utter astonishment at the devastation that was sweeping this world an army annihilated before their eyes—scores of thousands there must be of the dead." The voice of Blake was husky with horror. "'What a choice little bit out of Hell!' he exclaimed. "'Mac, did you say they were our friends? God help us if they're not!' "'They are,' said Maguire grimly. "'Those are Althora's people, who had forgotten how to fight. They are recapturing something that they lost some centuries ago. But can they ever destroy the rest of that swarm?' I don't think they have the heart to do it. They do not need—it was Althora speaking—my people are sickened with the slaughter, but the Red Ones will go back into the earth, and we will seal them in. It is Jorn who tells me, and the world will be ours for evermore. A matter of two short days, crammed to the uttermost with the realization of the astounding turn of events, and McGuire and Althora stood with Blake and Jorn, the ruler, undisputed, of the beautiful world of Venus. A fleet of great ships was soaring high in air—one only, the flagship, was waiting where their little group stood. The bodies of the fallen had been recovered. They were at rest now in the ships that waited above. McGuire looked about in final wonder at the sparkling city bathed in a flood of gold—a kindly city now, beautiful. The terrors it had held were fading from his mind. He turned to Althora. "'We are going home,' he said softly, "'you and I.' home." Althora's voice was vibrant with dismay. "'We need you here, friend Mac Guire, the voice of Jorn broke in, in protest. "'You have something that we lack—a force and vision—something we have lost.' "'We will be back,' the flyer assured him. "'You befriended me. Anything I can do in return.' The grip of his hand completed the sentence. "'But there is a grave to be made on the summit of Mount Lawson,' he added quietly. "'I think he would have preferred to lie there, at the end of his journey.' and I must return to the service where I have not yet been mustered out." "'But you said you were going home,' faltered Althora. "'Will that always be home to you, Tommy?' "'Home, my dear,' he whispered in words that reached her only, "'is just where you are.' His arm went about her to draw her toward the waiting ship. "'There or here—what matter? We will be content.' Her eyes were misty as they smiled an answer. Within the ship that was lifting them they turned to watch a city of opal light grow faintly luminous in the distance, an L-shaped continent shrunk to tiny size, and the nebulous vapours of the cloudland that enclosed this world folded softly about. "'We will lead,' the voice of Blake was saying to an aide, "'same formation that we used coming over. Give the necessary orders. But,' he added slowly to himself, "'the line will be shorter. There are fewer of us now.'" An astronomical officer laid a chart before the commander. We are on the course, sir, he reported. Full speed, Blake gave the order, and the thundering generator answered from the stern. The space fleet of America was going home. End of chapter 19 And End of the Pirate Planet by Charles W. Diffin